Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, hello. Welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm Ben Shank. I'm Russell Wilcox. Today on the show, we have Matt Paul. For Matt, skiing is fun, and he has pursued this passion professionally for the past six years. From ski patrolling to ski guiding, Matt has recently begun transitioning to a more ski mountaineering focus. From Cascade Mountains to Alaska's highest peaks and soon China, the allure of ski adventuring with lighter gear is what gets him fired up these days. So Matt, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners so they can get to know you? Yeah, originally from the flatlands of the Midwest, fortunate uh, my dad was like a huge ski aficionado and ski instructor and got us fired up on skiing at a young age. So I spent time in uh, Utah growing up. I think that's kind of what set the hook as far as the future path of my life. Yeah, after college, found skiing and then uh, have just slowly been progressing from guiding to patrolling and now getting more into like ski mountaineering and racing and just kind of progressing and up in the ante and yeah, having fun with it. So when you say racing, uh, is that uphill downhill type racing or? Yeah. So in Europe, it's a super big deal. Uh, but like ski mountaineering, you skin up or you climb up and then you ski down. It's like cross country skiing, but with the fun part of skiing down. For the listeners, basically what Matt was talking about there with skinning is You throw these pieces of fabric underneath your skis so you can kind of walk up the mountain on your skis and you won't slip down. So basically what you do is go to the highest mountains in the States, throw on those skins, and then you proceed to go all the way up the mountain. So why wouldn't you just take a chairlift? (laughs) You know, you can take a chairlift, but unfortunately there's only chairlifts in very limited locales in the mountains and so with skins the world's your oyster pick what you want to go ski and go ski it just the adventure you know i think uh intuitively we all have that within ourselves we want to go out and explore and push ourselves and um do what we love and i think this really encompasses everything that a lot of us get fired up about you can go anywhere in the world and go ski mountains and you don't need a whole lot except for skills, knowledge, experience, and certain gear. Yeah, you mentioned your transition from just normal skiing to ski mountaineering. We've heard about one of your trips to Mount Rainier. Was that the beginning of your ski mountaineer career? What was that like? Rainier was, yeah, I'd say, yeah, maybe it's in the beginning. I was fortunate, you know, I, I guided up on Mount Shasta as a, as a mountain guide and ski guide and, and got acquainted just with the whole mountaineering and had done some mountaineering prior to that as well. But from there, um, just some of my buddies and other guides went up to Rainier. I first climbed it actually just mountaineer style and it got to the top and I was like, well, this would be a hell of a lot better if I had skis on (laughs) and I could ski down. So then we went up, my buddy Zeb and I did a Cascade Volcano trip where we tried to climb and ski a bunch of Cascade Volcanoes and Rainier obviously is one of the prominent Cascade Volcanoes. Yeah, we climbed it via the camp, went up to Camp Mir and then there's a route called the Gibraltar Ledges, which is one of the more direct routes from that side of the mountain, but it was super sweet 
because we ski a, a line called the fear finger and we ski it from 14,000 feet all the way to 4,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So we had like 10,000 vertical feet of skiing. How long does that take you to ski 10,000 vertical feet just down? Uh, probably took maybe two hours. Wow. So what's the difference between skiing a volcano and then just a regular mountain? I guess besides the fact that it could erupt at any second. Uh, <laughs> yeah, most of them are dormant. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. I think they said like Mount Shasta has a one in 100 chance of erupting in the next 100 years. So okay. yeah, a little roll of the dice, but I think the odds are in my favor. Yeah, so volcanoes are, A, most of them are glaciated. So knowing like cross rescue and glacial travel is pretty important. And two, by the nature of volcanoes, they're much more cone-shaped. As far as the up and the down, sometimes it can be more straightforward. But with that being said, I mean, Rainier, you can find anything you want up there. So, And also the other thing with volcanoes is, you know, obviously since a lot of them are glaciated, they hold snow all year long. June, July, you can still be skiing on some of these mountains if it was a good enough snow year. How would you compare free skiing to ski mountaineering that you're doing? I mean, is the snow quality similar? It seems like with these rugged mountains, it's not going to be even close to the same. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably like the biggest thing. Free skiing, you know, everyone's just a bunch of powder hounds and wants to wear their big fat skis and go slay a bunch of powder. Ski mountaineering, we ski ice and chicken heads and not so fun snow. That component is completely different. But I, I love it because, you know, we all live to ski powder and it's super fun. But at the same time, it's not technically challenging. Whereas if you have wind buff, ice, or variable snow conditions, it just forces you to be on your game a little more and adds that dimension. Usually when you have powder, you have either new snow or recently new snow. So that leads to instabilities within the snowpack, possibly. So we like it when sometimes you know you have a much more consolidated, harder snowpack. There's such a vast terrain that you'd cover going down 10,000 feet. How are you able to mitigate the risks of avalanche and any other things you'd come across while ski mountaineering? Good question. Um, knowledge, skill, like knowing what the snowpack's doing, given the elevation aspect you're on, formulating good trip plan. And if you know there are hazards that are lurking out there, creating like no-go zones in the mountains. You know, you'll have spots where you're like, okay, I know we had southwest winds, so it's loading northeast aspects, and I'm just going to stay off those aspects. I mean, we've had trips where you'll go up high and everything is it's just ice and not good snow. Then you get down like mid elevation and you can actually have blown in powder and then you get lower elevation and you're skiing corn. You can like run the whole gamut as far as snow conditions in one ski. So Matt, I want to move on to this huge Denali summit. That was uh, with my buddy Zeb again, another two guys that we patrol and guide with uh, here in Tahoe. Actually, my buddy Zeb put together the trip. He worked as a guide for Rainier Mountaineering and uh, guided up on Denali. Yeah, it was just four of us. We had a super small window. We had 17 days on the mountain to do it. So we knew like time was going to be of the essence. And yeah, we trained quite a bit for it, got in good shape, got acclimated, went up there and tried to find what we could find. So for the listeners, the peak of... Denali, the elevation is over 20,000 feet. So how do you go about training and getting yourself acclimated? What are the steps that you take before you get there? Obviously, there's not any 20,000 foot peaks here in the lower 48, but 
Just working up on Shasta. I worked uh, preseason in April and May. So that's 14,000 feet. A couple of our other guys are up on Rainier, which is again 14,000 feet. So just spending time at higher elevations. Uh, actually, I think the week before I left for Denali, I spent four nights high up on the mountain on Shasta. So like 13,5, just getting my body acclimated to being at those higher elevations for a longer time. And then also just training a bunch, just Training meaning just climbing and skiing. Yeah, just making sure I was in good shape. So I heard this interesting training method, which I'm not sure if the real pros use this or not, but basically you go to the bar, you get completely wasted, you smoke a whole pack of cigarettes, take all the ashes from the cigarettes, put it in a mixed drink, get (laughs) two hours of sleep, wake up, drink the mixed drink with the ashes, from there, run up a huge flight of stairs, and all of this is supposed to simulate your dehydration, your hunger. Do you ever take any sort of training <laughs> methods like that? <laughs> yeah, no. But there is a guy, Mark Twight, pretty famous alpinist, who wrote this book, Light and Fast, Extreme Alpinism. And his whole thing was when you feel the crappiest or when the weather is the crappiest, that's when you want to go out and train. Because ideally, you know, and the same thing happened on Denali, you feel like crap at 20,000 feet. Maybe there's a little bit of truth, but I don't think you really need the cigarettes. So you've done all this training, you guys are preparing, you're ready to go to a last. I, I, I also heard this quote from this book that I read recently, and they said, the simple fact is when you go to Alaska, you get your ass kicked. Is that the experience that you had when you guys actually got to the mountain? Yeah, I think that's true. Everything's just bigger in Alaska. You look up and you're like, oh, it doesn't look that big. And then you realize like that's a 5,000 foot face. Everything that you think is just magnified. It's just bigger. I think just inherently by the scale. Yeah, you get your ass kicked, (laughs) Uh, but in a good way. You just have to go in the pain cave for a little bit. So let's go to the bottom of the mountain and you're ready to take off on this adventure. What kind of supplies do you bring with you and how much do they weigh? Like, what do you have to drag? How do you carry them up the mountain? Yeah. So you start in Talkeetna. That's the main little town, the jumping off point for Denali. From there, you load up on a plane and they have these little planes called otters uh, and they have little skis on them and actually land on the glacier, the Cahilton Glacier at 7,000 feet. So we each were allowed to bring 125 pounds. And that includes all of our food, all of our fuel, all of our ski gear, tents. So roughly, we probably had like 600 pounds between us. They land on the glacier, unpack all your things. And from there, it's like, okay, you start your ascent, working your way up the mountain. And you actually have like a big pack. And then you also have a sled, if you can imagine, like a plastic sled mm-hmm. that you put your duffel bag on and you tether it to your to your back. And you literally drag that thing all the way up to 14,000 feet. It's pretty tiring. You're getting 7,000 vertical feet with 120 pounds. Do you even bring any water? Or are you mostly taking snow that you're around? I mean, you have unlimited supply of water and then just boiling it as you go up? Yeah, you boil most of it. You start with two liters of water, and then you just you just keep boiling it and refilling it that way. Does it taste good? <laughs> it's not bad. As long as you don't find the yellow snow, you're all good. Oh, wow. Yeah, I yeah. didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you know, once you get to 14 camp, it's, I mean, it's like a big party up there. So there's a lot of people, and there's like literally latrines up there where people are peeing and pooping. And yeah, you got to make sure you get some clean snow. There's no bushes. There's no privacy. What's your strategy? Sounds there? like a really good sense of community. <laughs> yeah, it is. Actually, we were, our first day we were skinning up there, and there's this girl like literally just squatting in the middle of like all these rows of tents, and I'm like, sweet, yeah, okay, so this is what it's all about. Um, 
So doing number two, the park service administers these buckets, which is literally like a 10 gallon drum that you could pick up at the hardware store with like a screw top. And you get these plastic bags, these biodegradable plastic bags. So literally you dig out like a little trench and you build little walls. So you give some sense of privacy and you literally just squat over the bucket and then you know everyone brings up their own tp and then obviously that that back accumulates and then <laughs> everyone skins down to this glacier this open glacier or crevasse and tosses their poop in there that goes like way down into this crack but the problem is i actually read it this actually came out like right as we were leaving but people have thrown so much crap into these crevasses that it's you know these these mountains are constantly moving so they, they think like within 20 years, all this crap is going to literally get pushed down. So the lower parts of the mountain is going to start to resurface. And so like people are going to be skinny and there's just going to be crap everywhere. That sounds miserable. Yeah. I was imagining snow everywhere, this big white abyss. Too many bathroom breaks would probably disrupt that scenic view. <laughs> That's funny. That's the question I get the most. My family is like, so how'd you, how do you go to the bathroom? <laughs> Where do you go poop? Did you hold it for two weeks? I'm like, nope. Don't worry. So, yeah, that was that. was that. Yeah. So you were expecting this whole trip to take 17 days? Is that what you said? Yeah. And did it take that entire 17 days? It did, yeah. Okay. We didn't have great weather. So it was 2012. So I don't know if you guys were familiar with 2012. But it was a huge snow year up in Alaska. And they're just getting pounded with storms pretty much from January, December, all the way through June, July. We just didn't have any weather windows to actually climb and do some of the stuff we wanted to. So, yeah, I was checking out at the end of your blog and I noticed this video of one of your friends getting in an avalanche on the trip and it, it just seems so intense. What were you feeling that day? What was it like? Yeah, so his name is Ricardo. He was a Mexican that we had met on the summit who'd followed us up there. We'd summited a couple of days earlier and we finally had a good weather window. Earlier in the day, like we were a group of four and we'd split up into two teams of two and each ascended. Zeb and his partner and me and my partner um, went different routes. Uh, Zeb went up the Messner Kular. We went up the West Rib and skied the Orient Express. Uh, so we all descended, came back to 14 camp. And we're all, the way 14 camp works is it's just this huge amphitheater. So you get to see a lot of the big faces and big lines up there and you get to watch them. And Zeb was like, oh, yeah, we ran into Ricardo. He's following our boot pack up the Messners. So we're like, sweet. So we're like all like hanging out there and we're with the National Park Service with the Rangers. And we're watching Ricardo boot up and he stops and we have uh, our binoculars. And the way the, the Messner Coulard works is that it's a uh, kind of like an hourglass. So it, there's like a choke. And then after that choke, it opens back up. Zeb and his partner had skied like through the choke and then skied skiers right at that choke. And there was like a soft, um, unconsolidated snow, which they didn't know at the time was actually like unstable snow. Uh, it was either like a wind slab or some type of new storm snow slab. And Ricardo, being by himself, was kind of following their same ski track down. And as soon as he came out of that, that choke, he skied onto this, this slab and like stopped. And then the whole thing ripped out from under him. And we're watching this, and all of a sudden, we just see the whole thing crack, and this huge powder cloud go up. We're all like, this is not good. And at that point, though, there's like a big enough powder cloud that you really couldn't see much. So your audience knows, like, after the choke, it's probably about another 1,000 feet of snow field. 
after that, it ends into these huge Serac and ice cliffs, um, mm. in which case, like, it's not good. So he's pretty much going straight for this thing, and we're like, it's going to be a body recovery. He's just trapped in this avalanche, kind of sliding with the snow. He's not able to get up on his skis or anything, right? Yeah, so we had saw, like, no visual clues of him, like, being able to ski out of uh-huh. it right away. Um, we didn't really see much. We just saw, like, this huge yep. thing just rip out and go. And we're like, oh, man. So we were watching and kind of, like, preparing to get our stuff ready and have to go do a recovery. And somehow, at the last second, like, literally probably within 50 yards of, of where this thing literally drops off into a huge cliff and would have been, you know, came over for him. Um, he somehow got the edge of his skis into the bed surface, which is like the bottom surface of these kind of avalanche paths. And he's able to like traverse super hard left really quickly and get out of the avalanche path on stabler snow. Oh and, gosh. uh, he was just freaking out. Like we, we sort of saw it, but we couldn't just still like this big powder cloud happened. And, but then slowly, like someone said, they saw something and then we see him skiing down left of the avalanche path through like his exit route back to camp and he skis to camp and he just doesn't really say a whole lot. And it's just like shaking his adrenaline's just going through the roof and you couldn't believe it. So yeah, I think if he had nine lives, he'd definitely use one up there. It's funny because my buddy Zeb and his partner had skied that same line and they were completely quiet they totally realized they got away with one and that totally could have been them so it was pretty intense that was like the end of our trip and we were like okay we're ready to go now it's a 90 percent chance for the first person to actually set it off and so that is pretty lucky that it didn't get set off with them other than your own feeling on the mountain is there any sort of radio contact that you have with some snow experts before you go for the day to check weather conditions and and give you different updates other than your own comfort level yeah so the rangers up there use uh i would assume noaa and they actually write out like a forecast for the day as far as a weather forecast um, so they just give you wind speed direction, uh, and any new or precipitation. Uh, but as far as like assessing snow stability, that's all on you. That's why a lot of people use guides because it is super challenging. It takes a lot of years of experience to be able to be your own snow forecaster. You got to kind of carry the torch on that one. So, so you, you said that this was on the way down from the summit, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. And part of the way that you get acclimated is what I was reading is that you kind of hike up and then there are parts where you ski down, correct? Yeah, that's okay. correct. Yeah. So what if something like this would have happened in that instance where you're on your ascent and you're just doing a ski down to a lower level to get acclimated? Would you continue to the summit? If somebody had really gotten in an avalanche? Well, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but that year while we were on the mountain, five Japanese climbers died um, in an avalanche. Oh. Uh yeah, going from 11, they're actually descending in a storm from 14 camp to 11 camp and triggered a slide and got swept into crevasse. One guy survived, was able to get help, but the rest of them um, passed away, and I don't think they, they still haven't recovered their bodies. Um, so, yeah, like that was obviously when we heard about that. Um, prior to this whole thing happening with Ricardo, it was definitely on our minds. I don't think it has to be completely like no-go type of thing. A, you realize there are real consequences to what we're doing and what can happen if we actually put ourselves in in hazard's way. So yeah, you just could be on your game and, and you know, really choose terrain that maybe kind of dials it back a little bit and mm-hmm. you're more cautious. 
You have these incredible trips that it looks like you get to go on. You are a professional skier. Do you have sponsorships that help support these trips? And do you have any other work that you do uh, on the side to help support some of these trips? I think when you say you're a professional skier, I'm not the Chris Davenport's of the world where uh, I mean, get my travel expenses plus monthly stipends, <laughs> unfortunately. I have some friends that work for like Patagonia and Black Diamond and La Sportiva. We usually get some type of gear sponsorship. And then as far as travel expenses and the rest of it, it's it's on my own. So I like to consider myself a self-sponsored professional skier. So, and then, yeah, on the side, wintertime, I teach avalanche courses. Uh, I guide, a ski guide, and previously I've been working as a full-time ski patroller. Yeah, I spent a lot of time on my skis, my ski boots. Nice. Are you pretty happy being so immersed in the ski industry, having that be your whole lifestyle? It's a pretty unusual lifestyle. Maybe you don't realize that because you're living in a <laughs> daily basis, but it's not driving to uh, your corporate job. No, I definitely think I live in a bubble and I like my bubble. <laughs> There's pros and cons. I really think we get to live super healthy lifestyles. The most important thing is just the people, like people that are super passionate about what they do and are fired up. I think going out and playing and having that passion keeps you young, keeps you healthy and just gets a smile a lot. And, uh, the downside is, as I'm getting older, there is the financial sustainability of it. You know, I'm kind of getting pinched to to make some moves that will still allow me to do what I want to do. But, you know, the ski industry is not a lucrative business. Nobody's getting rich doing this. So, <laughs> and, ski, and ski towns aren't getting any cheaper either. So, there's, there's a real kind of chasm happening right now, I think, within ski towns, ski industries where sustainability-wise, it's a big issue. You mentioned that uh, in the winter you teach some avalanche safety courses. Do you think that there's enough education in that field? Yeah, I do. You really have to look at it on a historical scale. North America, specifically United States, is way behind. You know, skiing was invented in Europe. Europeans were early people doing snow science. And then the Canadians really adopted the European model. And they have a really good history of having avalanche education and snow science kind of background. And then we've adopted from the Canadians. And, you know, Bruce Tremper and the Utah Avalanche Center, they're kind of the epicenter for what's going on as far as snow safety and avalanche education. Uh, Pedalta was the first think, national avalanche school. I definitely think, though, the resources are getting out to the public. I think the discrepancy is, though, is it's one thing to be educated. It's another thing to go out there and get the experience and, and make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing the people like this year, we, I think we had 24 avalanche deaths already. And there was a group in Oregon that was a guided group, really experienced people. And it was unfortunate, but a couple of people passed away. And it was, it was really um, just really minute, small, micro features in the train that, that led to that incident. And I think that's, that's the really hard part. There's, it's not a black and white issue. Um, we all get a little bit of powder fever. There's all these emotional human factors going into our decision-making in the mountains. Wow. Yeah, that's great to hear your perspective on that. What's next for you? I mean, you talked about this China trip. Yeah, so a group of us uh, are going to Western China to go ski a 7,000-meter peak and ski some first descents in a zone uh, in Western China. We're pretty fired up. Is that pretty common to go to China? 
Yeah, so it would be southwestern, so it's near K2. Um, okay. As far as ski mountaineering, no, it's not, which is part of the allure of the whole trip. It's just the adventure. Not many people go to this region. Doesn't get skied much. The guy that's put the trip all together used to work in China for Outward Bound. is like fluent in Mandarin, um, so we're pretty psyched to have him lead the charge. There's a few ranges that still haven't been explored and skied, and this is one of them, so... Great. Yeah, we look forward to hearing more about it. Maybe if you have any epic stories for us, we'll have you on again <laughs> after that one. It sounds like an interesting trip. So that's great. Uh, maybe you want to just give one parting piece of guidance for our listeners and then maybe tell them the best way they can check out your adventures. Yeah, sure. As far as getting in the backcountry and ski mountaineering, which is a big passion of mine, is, is get educated. Um, I think the first thing people should be doing is go take an avalanche course. Uh, there's a couple of providers. Aries, a big one that's, in, I know, on the East Coast where you guys are. They're kind of all throughout Colorado, Utah, California, Oregon, Nevada. And then there's AAI, which is another provider um, up in Jackson, Montana area. Just like educating yourself, you know, knowing what you don't know is the best first step you can do. Yeah, as far as what I'm doing, I do have a little website where I just post photos and occasionally some trip reports. It's called www.transientdescents.com. Yeah, hopefully we'll have uh, an epic trip to China. Hopefully not too epic. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. All these different resources we've talked about and then also Matt's website, we'll put on his show notes page on mtnmeister.com. So uh, thanks for being on the show, Matt. Appreciate it. Right on. Thanks for having me, guys. Hello, Meister fans. Thank you so much for tuning in to Matt Paul's episode. This week, Ben and I are trying something a little different. Every Friday, we'll be doing a, a free giveaway, and you can see all the products at our website, mtnmeister.com. All you have to do is share one of our Meister episodes on Facebook. So it could be this episode of Matt Paul, could be one of our previous episodes. And if you share this and tag us so we know that you did it, then you'll be entered to win some of this free gear. And stay tuned for tomorrow's episode when we have Roland Mott on the show. Roland camps over 200 days per year, and you'll never guess how often he showers. <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs>